Again, I'm glad to be with you, with you all today. Um, and before we get started, um, we're jumping back into the book of Ruth today. Uh, and so we had just a one-week pause in this series last week. Um, if you don't have a Bible, um, you, can, uh, you can grab one from the back table. Um, back there, you'll find mugs, books, and Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take one home with you today. If you're using one of those Bibles, we'll be, I believe, on page 208 um, in the book of Ruth, um, which is in the Old Testament near the beginning of your Bible. Um, Everything else on that table as well, we would love for you to take home with you if you're visiting with us today. Um, take home books with you. Take home a mug with you. Um, all of those things are meant to help us. Uh, all those books are meant to instruct us more about how to love Christ, how to know Him, and make Him known. Uh, we'll be in Ruth chapter 2 today, and we're going to kind of jump into reading this pretty quickly because there's a lot to go through um, and not a lot of time to go through it. Um, so we might move pretty quickly through this. Um, before we stand and read God's Word together, I want to uh, say one of the reasons that we stand out of reverence for God's Word as we read it is out of reverence. It is out of respect for the fact that God is holy and His Word is holy, and we stand um, out of reverence for that. But the other reason that we do it, and all of us stand, is because um, we're not just coming to a point of our uh, worship gathering where, like, worship among uh, the pews stops, right? So one of the reasons that we all stand is because we recognize that as we go, even as we open God's Word, um, we are participating in worship together. Um, that's one of the other reasons that we all join and stand together. Um, that being said, we're reading all of chapter 2 today. Um, it's a lot of verses, and if you're unable to stand through the entirety of that, um, don't worry, you can sit down. God is not going to hold it against you. We're not going to hold it against you. It's all right. Um, I understand it. Um, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 2, and if you're able, I would love for you to stand with us um, as we read this together. It says this, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." 
And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would help us to understand it. We understand that your spirit wrote these words, and so we need your spirit's help to understand it, to believe it, to receive it in faith, and Lord, to follow you. Lord, we would like to see more of our Savior and his greatness today, and we pray that your Spirit would accomplish that in us. And we pray all this in his wonderful name. Amen. So if you're starting the series with us today, um, we are jumping sort of midway into the story of Ruth. And in many ways, it's not just the story of Ruth, it's the story of Naomi. The story began with Naomi and her husband and Elimelech in the land of Bethlehem, completely desperate, looking for food, and they leave the promised land of Israel, they leave Bethlehem um, because of the famine, and they go to a foreign land called Moab. They're going there because they are in search of some kind of um, provision for their family, and they're expecting to hopefully be blessed by God when, they're, when they are there, but instead, all they have is loss. Naomi Apparently, it seems from the text, loses her husband very quickly when she gets there. And over the course of 10 years, she loses both of her sons who had been married in that time to Moabite women named Ruth and Orpah. So then eventually, Naomi lost by herself, um, poor and a widow in a, um, a foreign land, a foreign land that was not friendly to Israel, hears about food and a harvest back in Bethlehem. And so she says, it is good that I now return back to Bethlehem. And as she's going there, one of her daughters-in-law, Orpah, turns back and stays in Moab, but Ruth goes with her, which leads her and us to that high point of the story, that if you know the story of Ruth, um, you probably know the, the famous phrases there of where you go, I will go, your God will be my God. It's this really amazing declaration from Ruth, a really triumphant moment for Ruth, but it's not a triumphant um, part of the story, because chapter one still ends with Naomi back in Bethlehem with only Ruth with her, and it ends with Naomi, whose name means happy and blessed. It ends with her telling her friends 
to call her Mara, which means bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me, she says. So we're not picking the story up at a high point. It's not an emotionally um, light moment to jump back into. Um, Ruth and her mother-in-law are uh, poor and needy and have no way to provide for themselves. And in that context, Ruth sets out to go and glean in the fields, uh, which was uh, a process. You can start turning, actually, if you want to start turning to uh, the book of Leviticus, chapter 19. We'll have it on the screen for you as well. Um, but the, the process of gleaning is something that God set up in his word um, for his people of Israel, a way uh, to care for uh, widows and orphans and those in need and the, and the sojourners among the people of Israel. So Leviticus 19, 9 uh, says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, for I am the Lord your God. And so whenever you have to really, Ruth is a story that we have to really work to kind of transition our mind back to the culture that they were in, right? When they're harvesting wheat and, and uh, grapes in the vineyards and everything in this time, they're doing it largely by hand, right? And whenever that happens, lots of stuff gets left over just naturally in the field. Lots of stuff falls through your hands, through your fingers, and onto the ground. And God said to them, that's not a mistake. I want that to happen. I want you to leave it there for those who are in need so they have work to do. They can come and work and pick up these things, not only to have food for themselves, but also to go and be able to sell that to meet their other needs. That's how this whole process would work. And not only were they supposed to leave behind what they accidentally dropped, but God said, you know what, don't even take it all to begin with, right? Leave some on the vine for these people. Sometimes, this is just an aside, but sometimes we have this weird caricature in our minds about the law of God and how the law of God worked, and we think that the law of God in the Old Testament was this really like scary and intimidating and angry and vindictive thing. And so whenever the world brings up something about the law of God, we are sort of ready to say, well, you know, it's the Old Testament, it was weird, like, let's not talk about it too much. When you really look at the, the law of God, you see none of that. The reason we think that way is because we've just been more discipled by the world than the church and by God's word. Um, in reality, what you see through the pages of God's law is you see God caring for his people. You see the heart of God to love the neighbor as himself and the heart of God to preserve life and preserve the image of God and his people. And we would do much better to look at God's word, all of it, Old and New Testament, in that lens and not in the caricature way that we often look at it. Because God put this system into place to care for people like Ruth and Naomi, people who had nothing else to do. And so Ruth goes out, and she goes into these fields. Um, she would have gone from field to field, even though this was commanded in the word of God. You still had to normally get permission from the owner of that field to go and glean in it. They were supposed to kind of uh, take charge of who was allowed in their fields, because if somebody um, was being a gleaner, but they were being dishonest, if, if they were known to be dishonest, then it was the duty of the landowner to say, no, you're not welcome in this field. So Ruth goes, we don't know how many different fields she tried, but we know that eventually she comes to the field of Boaz. That it says here that Ruth happened uh, to go into the field of Boaz. 
which I love how it just says she happened to go in there. It's like this little uh, wink or a nod at the providence of God at work, right? When we read the word happened, we could be tempted to think that it really was random chance that brought Ruth to Boaz. Like, oh, look at that. Look at how it just worked out, that she happened to go to the field of a man who was not only uh, wealthy and ready to provide, but um, was a relative that was able to take care of her. How, how crazy is that? How cool is that? When in reality, what's happening is all of God's plan is being perfectly followed. And his providence is leading her perfectly to this place. Even though his providence to this point in Ruth's life has been incredibly hard, she still understands that his providence can be trusted. Even though it's incredibly hard, I mean, Ruth's providence and what she's experienced in her life and what she's seen in the life of her mother-in-law is incredibly hard but still she knows that he can be trusted and the proof we have for that is because if Ruth didn't believe that she wouldn't be in Bethlehem at all right now she would be in Moab right if Ruth had gone through everything that she went through and then she's like yeah this God cannot be trusted she would not be here at all she would be back in Moab, but instead she's in Bethlehem. Instead, she's actually following the word of God, the law of God, to go out into the fields, trusting that he will provide for her there. And so she faithfully goes out there. She doesn't despise the fact that her life is really, really difficult right now. She doesn't despise the fact that she's had to leave her father and mother and everything that she knows. She doesn't despise the fact that she's poor and brought low and humbled. Trusting in God's providence, she just tries to be obedient in this moment. Go out and be faithful. It's really hard when I read that and I think about it because that's not my normal reaction. When I, if I'm dealt uh, you know, a hand, so to speak, anywhere near as difficult as Ruth's. And my reaction, our reaction, if we're honest most of the time, is to um, curl up in a ball um, and cry, or it's um, to get angry, and it's to scorn, and it's to um, seek to shift blame where we can find blame and things like that, but Ruth doesn't have any of that. Unlike I would be very tempted to do and probably would succumb to, Ruth is really faithful here to reflect the Savior that she knows, and it's that reflection of her Savior that Boaz notices if you look in uh, verses 8 through 9. When we learn about Boaz in the very first uh, verse of this chapter, I love how the ver- this chapter just kind of introduces Boaz before you meet him. The, the, the author just sort of says, hey, in a few verses you're going to meet Boaz, and I want you to know up front he's a worthy man of excellent and godly character. And so Boaz sees Ruth in the field, and he says a couple things to her that's kind of, uh, we might not pick it up right away because of how they speak versus how we would speak. But you see in verse 8, Boaz says to Ruth, essentially, I want you to stay in my field. I don't want you to go to anyone else's field. I'm going to provide for you everything that you need. Stay here in my field. He also says, you'll be safe here, and you'll have free reign. In verse 9, it talks about, um, I've commanded the young men not to touch you. It's not that Boaz would have been fine from um, mistreatment of women that weren't Ruth. What What that verse is actually talking about is the fact that if a gleaner was getting too close to the actual harvest, if they were following, they're supposed to be a distance away, right, to pick up the stuff that's left behind. If they were getting too close to the actual harvest, and you, it was your job to harvest, what you would normally do is reach back and kind of swat the person away and say, hey, this is, this is my job. Like, more space is needed. 
But Boaz is saying, basically, you can get as close as you would like and harvest anywhere you would like in this field. You'll be safe. You will not be harassed at all. Not only that, but Boaz says, I want you to drink from the good water whenever you're thirsty. The same water that um, his men who are working in his field is, are given is given to her, which would be entirely uncommon for a gleaner. Essentially, what he says to her is, come and be treated like a member of my family. We know that because what Ruth says in verse 10, she says, basically, why are you treating me like a family member when I am a stranger? Why are you treating me like I belong here when I don't? But Boaz um, clearly wants to be the only provider for Ruth. And her question of him is a fair one, right? Like, basically, what's going on here? Why are you being so kind to me? And what is Boaz's motivation here, right? Now, it's not um, what we might be tempted to think, and if you've seen movies, like, portraying this story, probably what you see in that is it's basically like a Hallmark movie, and so Ruth was probably just so beautiful that Boaz saw Ruth, and he was like, yeah, she's pretty enough for me to let glean wherever she likes, right? None of that is going on. The love that's displayed here is not in any way like Hallmark at all. Instead, what Boaz says in his own words is that she has been faithful to Naomi and ultimately faithful to God. And that's why he's doing this for her. He's saying, yes, you were a stranger, but now you are one of God's people. You've left everything to take refuge in the wings of God. And something that's really interesting for us to remember as we think about this story is who um, Boaz's mother is. Boaz's mother um, was named Rahab. We learn this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, when we get to the New Testament. So Boaz's mother is Rahab, and if, um, if you don't know about Rahab, she was uh, a, a citizen of the city of Jericho, which was not an Israelite city. Whenever the Israelites come in to that city, they tell, um, spies from Israel tell her, God is going to tear this city down. And Rahab, in that moment, trusts in the Lord and says, what can I do to help, basically? Or how can I be kept safe from this? She wants to follow this true God. And so then she is delivered by God and she's brought into Israel and eventually in the genealogy of Christ. Christ himself, a foreigner, not just a foreigner, but a, um, a woman who was a prostitute in, in uh, Jericho. She got grafted in to the covenant people of God by his grace. And I don't think there's any doubt that Boaz looks at Ruth and is reminded of the faithfulness of his own mom. He looks at Ruth and he thinks, man, my mom also left everything she had entrusted in the God of Israel, and look at this woman who's doing the same thing. It's like we talked about last week with Hebrews 12, right? Rahab and Ruth, these two women that saw how um, amazingly valuable God is, and so they left every sin and every weight that easily entangles, and they follow him. And it's not only those things that Ruth has done, but it's also because Boaz's heart desires to be a redeemer, right? Boaz understands the heart of God, and so he wants to show that same heart to Ruth. He understands that God's heart is for widows and orphans and those who need those who are lost to be brought in and to be saved. And so Boaz wants to do the same thing. And he takes it a step further in verse, uh, verses 14 through 16. He basically, at the mealtime, brings her to his table. 
All right, another expression of the fact that she is to be treated like his family member. He gives her the good food that's there, even bread and wine, no less. And then he tells the reapers not just to not get in her way, but to purposefully leave extra for her. An incredible amount of generosity that he shows to her. Now, after all these things happen, eventually Ruth goes back home and she gets welcomed by Naomi after a long day of work. And Naomi rejoices when she sees what God has done. If you look at verse two, uh, or chapter tw- chapter two, verse twenty, she says this: Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law, "May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead." I think right here in this moment, Naomi who again is going by the name Mara at this time, is beginning to see that God's kindness hasn't forsaken her. It could be that she is speaking of Boaz's kindness, who hasn't forsaken them. I really think that this is the beginnings of God working Naomi's heart back to himself, showing Naomi his kindness through Boaz. And Boaz is called a redeemer here, and this is another part of the Old Testament law, and we're going to not talk about it in detail today, but we'll get to it in more detail as it uh, goes on through the story of the book of Ruth. But for now, what we need to know is that redeemers or kinsmen redeemers, you've probably heard um, Boaz called before, a kinsman redeemer was someone who had the opportunity uh, to step in in the death of a relative and preserve the line, the property, and the inheritance of the man who had died to step in and not only, um, not just um, generate offspring, but actually to step in and truly marry the widow so that the widow was taken care of. Another instance of the law of God being good and kind and taking care of those in need. But Boaz is not just an Old Testament redeemer. Throughout this whole um, story, we've talked about this over and over again, that Naomi provides us this picture of Israel, the nation of Israel, and Ruth herself is this picture of a Christian and a Christian's response to God. But Boaz shows us so much of what Christ looks like and what Christ does for his people. So think about this, these parallels for just a moment. See, Boaz sees a widow in his field. He sees someone, a woman who is humbled and helpless and destitute. He sees her out there with no one to provide for her, and he promises in that moment that he is going to go at great cost to himself and redeem her. He's going to save her. He's going to provide for her. Just as Christ sees his people, his sheep, from before the foundation of the world, seeing all of our sin, just how far away we would be from him. He would see that we wouldn't just be weak and a little bit needy, but that we would be in utter need of a miraculous salvation at great cost to himself. And he covenanted in that moment, Christ said, I will go and save the stranger. I will go and save that sinner. And then Boaz not only does that, but he becomes a provider for both Ruth and Naomi. Part of Boaz's motivation is not just to provide for Ruth, but also for Naomi, who is his actual relative. And not just provide um, food for them, but to provide protection and security and peace and rest. What Christ promises and provides for us. But perhaps the most amazing thing, and we'll, you'll see this more and more as we go through the rest of the story, but one of the most amazing things about Boaz in this story is that he is not actually commanded by the law of God to do any of this for Ruth. 
There's not a, like, he is a redeemer. It's possible he has an opportunity, but he's nowhere in the entire law of God commanded or responsible to do this for Ruth. He does this for Ruth entirely as a gift. He does this for Ruth entirely because he loves her and he wants to. He does it entirely graciously. Which is the exact kind of salvation we receive from Christ. In Jesus, we have a, um, an unforced redeemer. Jesus, there was nothing about God, there's nothing about Jesus that required him to come and to save us. It wasn't like he was going to become less God if his people were not saved. It wasn't like his glory was going to be notched down at all. It's not in any way that he needed us and he needed to redeem us. And something was forcing Jesus' hand to get him to the cross. To get him to come here in the flesh to live and die and suffer and rise again. Instead, Christ came entirely for the joy set before him, which was redeeming his people. People that didn't deserve it people that were strangers, people that were cast out, people that were spurning his love, people that did, in fact, run away from him, people that did, in fact, follow the course of this world, people that are, in fact, hostile to him without his grace. He said entirely on his own, I will go and save them. And because of all these things, Naomi says to Ruth very wisely, you should stay with Boaz. You should trust this man. She even says here, it talks about um, her being assaulted in another field. The original word for that is more about being discovered in another field, meaning if you were to go around now, after this man has made it clear to you he's going to take care of you, if, he, if you were then seen in Israel going to all these other fields, what you're demonstrating to him is that you don't trust him at all. Like someone else will discover you, see you in another field, word will get back to him, and that's not going to go well. Basically, what Naomi is saying is you must trust Boaz right now. And the reason that this is an easy command for, Na- for uh, Ruth to obey is because of how good of a redeemer Boaz is, right? It's because of how trustworthy Boaz has already shown himself to be. That's why Ruth can trust him. Because where else would she go? Is there just tons of other men in Israel lining up to take care of them? There are tons of other men in the fields just trying to meet all of her needs. No, there's not. It's the same way for us. Where else could you and I go to look for a Redeemer? Who else could you look to? Like John 6 says, he alone has the words of eternal life. Like Mark 10 says, he alone is good. Jesus alone is good. Like John 11 says, he alone is the resurrection and the life. Church, where else could we go but to look at this Savior? Look, so look nowhere else. Look nowhere else. I know that what the world promises us all day long in a million different ways is different versions of peace, of forgiveness, of security, of adopted, of being brought into a family, of belonging, of being uh, provided security and rest. That's what's thrown at us all day long and all these other paths and all these other redeemers and redemptions that are not Christ. And most of them don't go by the name of a God at all, right? They just go by ways to live by which we can be provided for, adopted, secure, loved, and known and taken care of. But only Christ is actually able to provide that.
you will end up empty otherwise. You and I, when we look to other redeemers, when we go into other fields, we will end up empty. And that's, not, that's not a threat uh, from a pastor. That's a forewarning, and it's simply the truth that's there. Every false god proves false. Every false god proves false, even if it takes him a little while to do it. And we ought to ask ourselves what other fields we are tempted to look at. But this is one thing that I want us to remember as we go from here. One thing to take away for us in this third week of Ruth as we are studying this book is that there is only one perfect Redeemer to trust, to follow, and to shelter in. There's only one perfect Redeemer to trust, to follow, and shelter in. I want want you to stop for a moment and look at how great your God is today. Look at your God who takes care of the widow and the orphan, the needy, the stranger, the helpless, the heartbroken, the destitute, the desperate, the lost, the poor. Look at your God who not only takes care of them, but delights to take care of them. A God that never runs out of joy in taking care of his people, no matter how far off and how helpless they may be. A God who, uh, who so perfectly and graciously helps people who provide him absolutely nothing. People that don't uh, make him any greater than he already is. People that can't add to his glory for even a second. No, he is so gracious as to save and to provide for us. And you can look at him today and you can know that in him you can take refuge. Like Ruth did when she understands, right? This is what we said uh, two weeks ago in the book of Ruth. She isn't just following Naomi. She's following God when she goes back to Israel. She's following God. Because even here, it's affirmed there when it says that she sheltered not under the wings of Naomi. She sheltered under the wings of Yahweh. She sheltered under the wings of God. Church, when you are at a moment in life where you are desperately needing refuge, and you are desperately needing shelter, and you have lost everyone that you could lose, and you've lost everything you can lose, and you have um, everything in the world that is weighing on you, and you are unable to carry it for even a moment, you can take refuge in your God. And when you do it, you won't be shamed for even a moment. You come to God with every ounce of weakness, every ounce of sinfulness, every ounce of brokenness, anxiety, worry, every ounce of sin in any way that we could ever have. We can go to him at our absolute worst points and we won't be shamed by him in a moment. He doesn't despise the fact that we came. He doesn't despise the fact that we are still in so much need. And we also won't be put to shame. There won't be a moment where we go to take refuge in God and he actually lets us down. There won't be a moment where his promises ever prove void instead of true. And the most important thing is you will not find a God who's ever reluctant to have you there. You will never find a God who is reluctant to have you there when you come to him in need. How many times do we go to people that we love and we care about in moments of need and we wish that they seemed more excited to deal with our burdens? And then we think, boy, if, our, if this person across from me who is a regular person like me treats me this way or just struggles to, to sympathize the way that they should, how much more would the God of the entire universe struggle, right? How much more would he uh, lack in compassion when in reality 
He has an infinite compassion for his kids, always ready to welcome his children in. Because when you go to him, you will not find a reluctant God. You'll find that the Spirit of God prays for you on your behalf. You'll find that you have an advocate before the Father so that when you and I sin and we go and confess that sin, we have a perfect advocate named Jesus Christ the righteous who stands in the gap between us and pronounces us clean. Not only that, we have a high priest who is sympathetic. Right? We have a high priest in Jesus Christ who knows what it is like to suffer and to lose and to battle sin and to fight temptation, to indeed feel every ounce of the weight of sin on his shoulders. Not only that, but you have the father who has compassion on his children like a perfect father would. No matter how imperfectly our earthly fathers have compassion on us, we have a perfect father who has abundant compassion and you can take refuge in him. You can shelter in this God, in your Father. And refuge requires trust, right? We, we end up sheltering the things that we trust in. That's why we end up there. And so, if you think about it this way, Ruth trusts Boaz, right? And so, um, she takes refuge in Boaz's provision ultimately because she trusts God. And when she takes a refuge in, in his provision, we're not She's not simply listening to what Boaz says and then just thinking, yeah, it's pretty good advice. I wonder if I'll listen to it or I wonder if I'll follow it. Instead, what Ruth does is she actually follows it, right? It says that she does indeed keep going and she kept close to the young women of Boaz. So she actually listened and obeyed what was spoken to her because she trusted it, right? Because obedience puts us in a place where we do actually trust the God that we say that we trust. You and I all the time, we talk about taking refuge in God, and sometimes we just think that if we just, like, in our heart, we're deciding to take refuge in here, that's what counts. And that's, that's sort of true, but the other half of actually taking refuge in God is trusting in Him to walk it out and to follow Him and to, and to obey what He says. Because as we follow God's way, as we follow God's Word, then we are actually put in a place where we actually are reliant on His provision. Right? We're not actually relying on God's provision if we say that we trust in him and then we do all of our sinful schemes over here to actually get what we want and we need. We trust in him when we not just say that we do, but when we obey, when we do sacrifice, trusting in him to provide what we need. And you can do this because you have a great redeemer. Just like Ruth could trust Boaz and follow him because he was good. You have a great redeemer who is good. And that's true even when, hit, when God's providence in your life is incredibly difficult. Like Ruth, even when you're lost in that, the depths of despair, even when you're down to the point where you want to change your name from happy to bitter, you still have a God whose provision is still good and faithful. I want you to know this, that the provision of God is never uncaring. If you have trouble believing that like I sometimes do, I want you to look at the cross and see Christ there. I want you to see how his, God's provision, his perfect plan, brought Jesus Christ to the cross, which was not a pleasant thing, was not a fun thing, not a, an enjoyable thing at all, but it brought Christ to the cross, proving that all of his promises, all of his provision for all time is reliable, trustworthy, and good. That's why the scriptures say, if he gave us his son, how would he not give us anything else that is good? Your God never fails in that way. 
If he, would, if he would ever fail in that way, he would have failed at the cross, and he didn't. And also at the cross, see that a Savior is not there unfeeling, but a Savior is bloodied and broken and in tears and in desperation, suffocating on a cross. You don't have a God that is uncaring, no matter how hard the provision of God is. So you always have a God you can shelter in. And that trust that I pray that we have, just like it, that trust brought forth in both Boaz and Ruth obedience. I pray that it does that for us. If we say we trust God, that obedience would show up in our lives. So we need to seek shelter in this good God. And when we do that, and when obedience and taking refuge in him, like just like Ruth begins to get a reputation for trusting in God and being honorable, and just like Boaz has this reputation of being a worthy man, that's because they trust in God and they follow him. Let's pray that we would make him known here in Canal Winchester, in Groveport, in Lithopolis, that this area would see more of Christ because we've taken refuge in him, because that refuge has led to love and to trust and to obedience. Because we do know that we have a God whose kindness, we can know this, one of the great things we can think about today, we have a God whose kindness has never forsaken the living or the dead. We have a God whose kindness is greater than death itself. And he has said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. As it goes on to say, we read that earlier, as it goes on to say in the book of Hebrews, what can man do to me? when Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. Father, you are a faithful and righteous God who has shown us time and time again that you are loving and good. And Lord, I know that when we are through uh, the tougher parts of life and the parts where we are heartbroken, Lord, it is hard for us to believe it. It is hard for us to receive it. So I pray you would increase our faith increase our faithfulness to you, and increase our joy in our Savior today. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.